0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment Podcast, and today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Valerie Tiberius. She's the Paul W. Frenzel Chair in Liberal Arts and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. Valerie's work focuses on practical philosophy, particularly on the topics of well-being, happiness, and the good life. She has published numerous articles and books in these areas, and her work has been widely cited and recognized for its insightful contributions to the field. Her books include well-being as value fulfillment, how we can help each other to live well, and the reflective life, living wisely within our limits. Her newest book available now is called, What Do You Want Out of Life? A A Philosophical Guide to
1: Figuring Out What Matters. Welcome, Valerie.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: Absolutely. And then so in Valerie's book, she writes, we need to look for self-knowledge in the right places. This can be challenging. Sometimes it's obvious whose opinions we should discount, but often it isn't. People who want to manipulate us are often are usually pretty good at hiding their ulterior motives or at convincing us that they have our best interests at heart. For someone like me, who is naturally inclined to care too much about what others think, there's a real risk for looking for approval in all of the wrong places. When I was in college, I dated someone who was particularly skilled at making me think that his interests were my interests. The wake-up call for me was seeing a movie together and finding myself unable to tell if I liked it or not until I heard what he thought about it. I cringe when I think of this. But as I said, he was a skilled manipulator. My concern for his opinion, reinforced by his pattern of getting angry when I disagree with him, so dominated the experience of watching the movie that it crowded out everything else. One pernicious force that causes people to look for information and approval in the wrong places is internalized oppression. What happens when people in a disadvantaged group come to accept the norms that keep them down? It has the potential to profoundly distort their sense of whose opinion matters. So I love this, and this is my favorite part of the book. And so when as we begin the conversation, what I really first wanna talk about is just your personal experience with values, and that's why I picked that section of the book. So what's so important to me is it seems like, and it's, so we often think about clashes of values, but it seems like at that point you didn't really even know what your values were. Um, so, which is super fascinating because you were already in college, and one would think, oh, you know, a person in college probably already has a somewhat a reasonably strong sense of self. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in value research, and also especially in terms of your own life, how it informed your own thinking and your own decision making?
2: Yeah, God, it's fascinating to know what other people find is the most interesting part of your own book. <laughs> it's always interesting. Uh, so. Philosophically, I, I mean, how did I get interested in values research? I think, you know, I had a father who was very philosophical and talked to me from when I was a small child about what matters in life and how you have to orient your life around doing things that are important and making a contribution. And so, you know, psychologically, that's probably the historical explanation for for how i ended up in this kind of doing this kind of research um now as a philosopher i i tend to think about values as existing on a kind of spectrum like what people value is basically what they respond to psychologically in a positive way so what you feel good about what you want what you judge is meaningful and important in your life and you can have some of those uh, values that you have are very, you know, robust and stable and well integrated into your, whole psychological profile. And others of them are kind of, they're not really full values. They're sort of like, you like this thing, but you're not sure you should like it, or you feel good about it, but it doesn't always, um, you know, it's not always the thing you pay attention to because you're distracted by other stuff. So I think we have these values that are kind of on a spectrum from more ideal to less ideal. And in that passage that you read, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of my psychology that's oriented around pleasing other people and being pleasant and <laughs> making other people feel comfortable, which, you know, if you asked me, what do you, what do you value, would I say I value being a pleaser. No, I wouldn't say that. Do you value? I value being nice. I value being a kind person, but I don't value being a pushover. So that's a sort of that area of my own psychology is one where it, it, there's some stuff that I haven't always been fully aware of, and certainly wasn't in college. And there's some other stuff that I. I can, you know, endorse as a value like kindness, yes, but meekness and um, always thinking that I have to make other people happy. No. Um, does that, does that make sense? That was such yeah. a huge question you asked. I just-, well, so
1: just to kind of follow up on that, just before we continue about values. Um. So, okay. So you have this interaction with your partner and you're thinking, okay, I don't really know what I like. Uh, was this movie good? Was this movie not? I'm not really sure what to think. So how did you finally come to start thinking about it in a way that asked, you know, fundamentally, what do I want? Like, what do I like? What type of movies interest me?
2: Yeah. Well, I that was an occasion where his sort of controlling nature got more clear to me the longer the the amount of time I spent with him. You know, I had I had a kind of upbringing where I was encouraged to think for myself and to to I I think I have a reasonably high self-esteem. So at some point I, I sort of noticed like what am I doing with this person who I'm tiptoeing around trying to anticipate his moods and not make him upset about silly things? And, you know, so, so it was kind of like letting that sink in enough to recognize the pattern. I mean, that probably is familiar to a lot of people where you don't really notice that something's a pattern until it's happened for a while. And, and, and then when that happened, I thought, well, this is, this is not good. I need to I need to break up with this guy and I need to be I need to be more attuned to my own interests. Um and so that's that's how that happened. It just it took some time really.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense, right? I mean, otherwise you'd be sort of living inauthentically. You would just feel bad. You wouldn't be feeling like you're living through your own values, right? And absolutely. Actually, and on that topic actually of values, um How important would you say it is to be like, is being able to identify your values uh, actually something that's integral to being able to live a, a fulfilling life or a happy life?
2: I absolutely think so. And in fact, I more or less define a fulfilling life as one in which you are fulfilling, not just any of your values, but those values you have that are pretty stable and well integrated into your psychology. So the the things that you really care about and that your personality is kind of, you know, harmonized around, um, I think fulfilling those values, that's just what it is to live a personally good life a morally good life is something else. Like if, you know, we, we could talk about what it is to be a moral saint, but that's not my topic. I'm just interested in, you know, a good life for you, your own flourishing.
1: Right. Absolutely. And you distinguish the, dis- the difference between values and specific goals. So oftentimes when we think of values, we just think about it broadly as, you know, goals. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that? How do we fundamentally distinguish between the two and why is it that the two are interconnected?
2: Yeah, great. So I think you know, I think values are a special type of goal. So I think we have hierarchies of goals with values kind of more or less at the top and goals, the category of goals is a huge category that includes all sorts of pretty trivial things like, you know, floss your teeth every day or eat more broccoli, um, try to take a walk. Uh, But values are the, the, things at the top that sort of organize the, all the little goals you have. So values would be things like health or fitness or um, family, maybe relationships, broadly speaking, meaningful work. Those are our values. And then the goals are things that are like the way we get the values. So you have to have specific, you can't just fulfill the value of family. You know, if that's all you know about it, what will you actually do? You have to have specific goals that contribute to the value of family, like, you know, taking care of your children or being a respectful partner, or there has to be some, you know, lower order goals in the hierarchy that serve those higher, higher order values. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, totally. And just to add okay. on to that, um, in your book, you talk about. Uh, goals that are uh, potentially sort of a means to an end in order to fulfill certain values i'm i'm curious um how how maybe could someone identify one that maybe one of their goals is sort of a means to an end because th- there is a, an example that you have in the book of Um, I forget if it was you personally, or if you cited someone else, uh, forgive me. Uh, But you you were talking about uh, maybe going to the gym, right, as fulfilling that value of health. But then um, described in the book, it it seemed to be not a, a enjoyable activity as far as that goes. So how can someone maybe identify something like that? And maybe what would they do in order to still fulfill that value if they do identify what they're doing as a means to an end?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it's not a question that has like a, a sort of one-stop answer, you know, yeah. kind of blanket answer for everyone because it depends so much on the details and the context. But yeah. a couple things. So one thing is that I think often that line between what's an ultimate value and what's a goal that's just a means to an end, it's sort of fuzzy. Um, so there are some cases where, things like like for instance fitness hmm. is that do you just value fitness because you want to live a long time or because it helps you do your other things or do we value being fit and healthy for its own sake i think mm-hmm. that's a kind of hard question and i think if you asked people they would have a hard time answering it i mean i have a hard time answering it for myself but with certain other kinds of goals and values, you can make that distinction. So if you're going to the gym, because you want to be fit, and you're taking your think fitness is the value, I want to be healthy, I want to feel good about my body. Uh, And so you go to the gym and lift weights or do ellipticals, and you just hate it. And it's really hard to get yourself to go. That's a case where, you know, it would make sense to think I'm not going to the gym as my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is to be more fit. And if there's some other way I could do that, that would be easier for me. then That's what I should do. I mean, I think this is a kind of common you know, practice in like therapy and coaching, where you just try to distinguish what is it I really want? How am I currently trying to get it? And is there some way of trying to get it that would make it easier to get than the path I'm on now?
1: Right. Hmm. Yeah. And now I'm thinking about it. We had on Kenan Sheldon in December, so he's a he's a he's he's pretty much one of the founders of uh, what would you call it? Uh, I was going to say positive positive psych. psych- I was going to yeah. say practical psychology. Uh, <laughs> even though it is practical, but yeah, positive psychology. So for Kenan, he could distinguish between self-imposed values and sort of more um more intrinsic ones, like intrinsic goals, uh intrinsic worth. Well, you know, however you kind of want to classify it. And I remember him talking about something that really resonated with me, where he said, you know, people who have values that seem to be externally imposed, even though it's you who's really imposing them on yourself. Even uh, when they seem externally exposed, there's a lot of resistance to them. So even though, let's say, the gym is you know kind of a more basic example, where if you don't really want to work out, but you think, oh, people are going to think I'm overweight, or people are not going to want to date me, whatever, you're going to probably want to go, but you're going to go kicking and screaming. So uh, in the, on that episode with Ken, we were talking about perfectionism, and I essentially told him that a lot of what I do, I feel like I have to do. So like, uh, not necessarily with my work, even though obviously I do have to work for a living. I, just in terms of little everyday things, like let's say. Keeping a list, making sure I get all my to to do things done, uh, you know, kind of working out as much as I need to. Let's say, uh, I don't know, doing notes for like therapy. That's a common thing, doing billing for insurance, like all of these different things. And yeah, and Ken said something along the lines of he said, Yeah, you know, you don't really seem like that kind of happy, you know? And I was like, Yeah, you know, I'm not really. (laughs) You know, I said a lot of my day is kind of have to, right? It's not so much about wanting to. And I love that in your book, you distinguish between the two, between having to and wanting to. And you, again, going back into your personal. Personal story. You talk about how there are certain parts of your life that you didn't necessarily want, but you felt like you had to do. You mentioned particularly about reading books that you didn't necessarily want to finish. I am in that camp as well. I've read plenty of horrible books that I finished for no good reason in the end. Um, and then you just in terms of who you want to be or the person that you want to create. So how do we now come to think of understand values because we do have to balance what we have to do as opposed to who we want to be. Not in terms of just to be clear what I mean by this. Not in terms of who we want to be. Just you know like oh, I want to be like this fun-loving guy or whatever, but also in terms of who we want to be in comparison to our ideal self. So this is where the where it gets kind of muddy, where people really get trapped because we often get pulled in these two different directions. And so for me, I tend to veer on the side of have to because I'm like, oh, well, if I don't do these things, I kind of know I, what I'm going to be like. I'm going to sort of fall back. I'm going to sit and watch Netflix and, you know, whatever, eat whatever I want. It's going to be this terrible thing, you know, this sort of slippery slope, at least I think. And then so, you know, I want to start talking about how do we think about kind of the so-called balance, because oftentimes this is where people get stuck between this ideal self of have to, and this other sort of more fun loving self that says, you know what, I don't want to die just having to have, you know, or having a life of a bunch of to-do lists.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're really just poking your finger in what I take to be like the fundamental problem of living a life, uh, which, which is, you know, the broad problem. It's just that We have lots of goals and they conflict. So, you know, um, you have to figure out some way of of dealing with that. I think so you put it in terms of like doing what you have to do, do doing versus doing being a fun loving, you know, kind of doing fun things, I guess. So. One thing about a lot of the things that we have to do is that they do serve things that we care deeply about. So like all that stuff about billing, I'm sure billing insurance is not fun, but could you do your job if you didn't do that? Probably not for long. Um, So there's a certain, there. like, I guess I think about those sorts of things that are like. An an, a, an essential part of a valuable activity that you really do care about and don't want to give up, you kind of have to suck it up and, yeah. and you have to you have to find ways of of trying to minimize the amount of time that that busy work takes up. And God knows I was in academic administration. So, you know, it's department chair for six years and oh, there was so much of that kind of stuff that sort of like. Tedious tasks that absolutely have to be done to keep things running and they contribute to this larger project, but they're not fun to do. So, I think the best thing you can do is just find ways to minimize the amount of your time that those things take up. But, um, there isn't a way of like there's (laughs) there, you know, unless you can change the insurance system so that practitioners don't have to do all that, but you know that would, you You could try to do that, but that would be another big old job that you'd be working on and not enjoying very much. So I think, I think to a certain extent that that's just a fact of life that a lot of the huge projects that we, that are really meaningful to us, they just entail a lot of busy work. And to me, it seems like, you know, try to find ways of reducing the amount of time that takes, but know that you're not going to be, don't beat yourself up about having to spend some time doing that because it's part of this thing that you do care about. Um, And I guess that, that to me seems important to kind of keep your mind when you're feeling bad about doing that sort of stuff to, to remember the reason that you're doing it is that it does serve something important. You're not just doing it for its own sake. Um, but then I, I guess, you know, on the bigger question of what to do about conflict or the, the sort of general problem of conflict, I do think sometimes we have to get rid of some of our goals and, um, you know, sometimes you're spending so much time doing something that doesn't really matter to you that you need to actually make some kind of change and maybe that's why a lot of like people after the pandemic left their jobs and never went back because mm-hmm. they realized like I'm do- I'm spending so much of my limited time on this earth doing things that make me miserable that I don't care about and they don't connect to anything. I'm not doing it anymore. But it doesn't sound like your case for particularly. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's interesting. Uh, while you're just speaking, I thought of two things. Uh, one thing that's very interesting is that yeah changing up your goals or sort of reevaluating what it is that you're doing um on the topic of changing up your goals i suppose yeah if one of the tasks or some of the tasks that you're doing are tedious i suppose uh one could consider um outsourcing those tasks right at least in your case right like if let's say billing right maybe somebody else can do the billing yeah. uh but then one thing that's very interesting to me that you said is also looking at the reason um it is that you're doing these these uh trivial tasks right what is that overarching goal uh w- what's that meaning um to it right to that bigger project i think on that topic and i, I guess uh, i want to also see what you both think too um i think that it's very important to you know as often as possible reevaluate always why it is you're doing what you're doing, because a lot of times we get stuck in the automaticity of things. Like, oh, okay, today's Monday. I have to do this, 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 attend uh, to my family. Yeah, that's this, me. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then uh, the time that we take to actually kind of evaluate why it is we're doing what we're doing or what is that overarching purpose or value, I feel like that almost reminds us and kind of, kinds of gears us towards Uh, finding the meaning even in those trivial tasks and what it is that they accomplish. Because uh, you could, I mean, I've had this before and I'm sure other people could relate too. you almost experience like a level of burnout sometimes from these little things that you have to do. Mm. But then when you do see like, Oh, uh, this, this is what I'm doing here. It's for my family, or I'm trying to help as many people as possible with this goal or with this book or whatever it is all of a sudden that could sort of gear you into that mindset again, where you have the energy uh, for these tasks. Yeah. I don't I, know, what, uh, you know.
2: I really like that. It it makes me think of a, a study. I can't remember who did it, but it was a study of people, um, people in their jobs. And one of the groups that they studied was um, janitors, like custodial staff at At a hot, I think at hospitals or maybe different places, but they had maybe maybe one of you has heard of the study and you know more of the details than I do. But what I the, the the punchline that I remember is that there were some people who some of the the janitors who said when they were interviewed about their jobs they said, "Well, I clean the floors. I'm a janitor," and that was it. And there were other people who said, "Well, I'm helping the patients." Because they like to have a nice clean room. It helps their health. It makes them recover faster. I make sure that the water is fresh in their flowers so that when their families visit them, everything looks nice. So they had this whole like connection between the work they were doing and the larger project of the of the healthcare system. And those janitors who saw their work in that way, like they're doing the same work, but they had a different um, narrative about it. They were they tended to be much happier than the people much happier with their jobs than and just happier in life than the people who didn't have that way of seeing it. And that's I think that's kind of what you're saying. And I I Mm -hmm. think that's really important.
1: Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was actually going to agree. I was going to say with Alan, uh, in terms of just overall values, so technically speaking, um, and this is something I would pat myself on the back on, so I'm one of the few psychotherapists here that actually takes insurance, so very many of them don't. And so for me, if I didn't do the billing, a lot of patients wouldn't actually have therapy because many of my patients can't afford to pay out of pocket. So yeah, even though I hate billing and I hate doing the paperwork and whatnot, that is an overarching value of mine. I can look back and say, okay, even though this is super tedious work, and it's not like you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, well, anybody owes me anything for it. I just like that in terms of my own character to be able to say, oh, yeah, I'm like one of the few therapists that actually take insurance. So and also I benefit from it, too, just to be clear, because I have a wait list because of that. Otherwise, I'd be like every other therapist just scrounging around for people. But does
0: that genuinely make you feel better about it? Or are you just saying, like, now that I thought about it? Like I could oh, see no. the sense in it or do you genuinely?
1: Oh, I genuinely do. Yeah. Okay. So when That's I, good. when I, so I could even give you a quick example. So I'm now having a significant problem, significant with one of the insurers. I mean, it is, I'm not going to say who it is on air, but it is one of the, no, the worst run company, health insurance company in the world. These people do not know the difference between a tax ID and a social security. Say ID. their name. <laughs> <I'm> just... <laughs> so yeah, so no, no understanding of just the formalities and administrative work. They have no idea what they're doing. So we go back and forth. It, nobody can really help me in any significant way but yeah the people that i have and the one patient that i'm thinking of she thanks me like a million times because she's like dude i thought you were gonna give up on this ages ago i was like i know man that every single time i just keep seeing a way out and i keep taking it and it's not a way out it's just another block and i'm like come on mm. Yeah, but that's so great. I love I love that
2: uh, your your attitude towards the billing. I mean, I just think that's perfect. It, it makes makes me yeah. It it confirms my thoughts about about the importance of values. I, I was get- thinking too about you know uh, that saying like live each day as if it were your last. Hmm. Well, like if you if this were my last day, I would. I wouldn't probably, oh, maybe I would still do the podcast, because then it would be like my legacy or something. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, I certainly wouldn't make my bed and do the laundry. And There's lots of things I wouldn't do. And if I were you and it were like my last day, I wouldn't do any billing. Right. But you can't live <laughs> your life like that, because you have things that are meaningful to you that necessarily extend into the future, and you have to, like, caretake for them, or you'll never you know, you won't, they, won't. those values won't flourish. So it's like, it's sort of like live each day as if it were your last. It's kind of good, but there's something good about that mindset, but you can't really live that way all the time.
1: Right. Yeah, and I like that what you're both saying is fundamentally with values, it's sort of it doesn't eliminate it, but it reduces the sort of chance or opportunity for burnout. So uh, even the clients that I have when we have conversations about values, and a lot of my therapy does actually focus on values coincidentally. Um, so a lot of the times when they are burned out, it's because they don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. So let's say if somebody's a surgeon or whatever or a doctor or something along those lines, you know, the thinking is like, yeah, I feel like I just I have to do it. I go through the day kind of automatically, I do what I need to do, but I'm not necessarily sure why I even love it anymore. And so I think for a lot of people and this is a, really an area that I want to go into right now. I think a lot of people are terrified of questioning their values, man. I think a lot of people, yeah, so a lot of people what they do is they think, you know, if I start thinking about why I'm doing what I'm doing, what if I find out that the last 10 years of my life was a complete waste. Yeah, and just
0: to tag that a little bit, in your book you do talk about the the role of introspection. I'm curious um how how much? Okay, wait. So, one is introspection valuable, but then two is—is is there uh, a way that someone can be too introspective? Is is there sort of a detriment to being too introspective?
2: For sure. So, yeah. I guess I, I'm still I'm still uh, processing the comment that people are terrified about thinking about their values because. I guess you know my immediate reaction to that, and I'll I'll come back to introspection. But my immediate reaction to that is like, well, better now than ten years from now, or better now than on your deathbed when you fear, you're worried that your whole life was a waste. I don't know. That's my my thinking about that. But I I appreciate that it is it is scary, and you don't want to think that you've wasted your time. Um, I guess so. On introspection. I think the thing is that and of course as a psychotherapist you you probably are you know much more aware of this than I am. People aren't that good at introspecting. I mean they they you know they you like I I can think about my own example. I sort of think about what am I like? What do I like? What brings me joy? And often, you know, I come up with answers that they're not very deep they're often influenced by these like self-aggrandizing narratives I have or or at least these kinds of narratives that you know they've always worked for me in the past this is the kind of person I am so therefore I want to whatever keep doing what I'm doing or not but sometimes if you have like insights about yourself that come from somewhere else, like from a therapist or a, I had a um, career coach when I was department chair. She Mm -hmm. had lots of insights or from friends and you realize, God, that person's really right about what, like I'm doing something right now that's making me anxious and miserable. And I couldn't see that, but someone else could. You know, I mean, that's why people go to therapists is to find out things about themselves that they can't access. So I I think introspection, it has its place, but it's very limited. And I also think your point about the sort of risks of being overly introspective Mm. is a really good point too, because if you're always thinking about yourself, then you're not going to be... I mean, I think just thinking about yourself all the time is a mistake because what you what you sacrifice when you do that is the time spent actually doing the things that matter. Um, You also run the risk of throwing some of the things that you care about into doubt in a way that isn't very helpful. So like, if you think about it in the context of friendship, you know, you could, you have, you have various friends and you could be a person who's always thinking, is that friend really good? Is this friendship worth it? How much Mm. do I really like this person? How much are they really the kind of person I want to be friends with? To me, like that's the way to kill a friendship is to just always be second guessing it and thinking, and, that, and I think that's, there's an analogy, an analogy to introspection about yourself. If you're just always questioning and reflecting and asking, is this, you know, who, what am I doing? What do I care about? Am I doing the right thing? You, you're, you're spending so much time questioning that you're not doing the things that you need to do to actually fulfill the values that you have.
1: Right, in the romantic realm, what's so interesting is that you sometimes have people who question whether or not they're in love with their partner. Mm -hmm. So like I've had patients in therapy tell me like, yeah, I, I think I love her, but I'm not sure. Like, do I what does it mean to be in love and I'm like oh my god it's like you know this deep philosophical discussion which is fine to an extent but you know when you're constantly barraging the partner with these questions sometimes they don't even sometimes they just kind of pull away and the other person has no idea why they're doing so but that happens a lot and if you think about the big five that's a high trait of neuroticism and so yeah for a lot of those people I mean they call it analysis paralysis where you essentially become super indecisive because life isn't presenting a level of clarity to you that really pretty much that's the food that catalyzes some sort of change so for people with high degrees of neuroticism it's as though they're dependent on the world to tell them what's obvious so they can't figure out for themselves whether or not they're in love they're not in love whether or not they're really attracted to the person or whatnot it's like in some ways the thinking is it's very destiny-esque and it's like you know fate will tell me if this is the person for me which obviously the universe doesn't really provide
0: also it's it's a very reactive sort of strategy right i mean if you're constantly relying on uh whatever answers you might come up with in your mind, right? Well, one, to your point, um, you're using opportunity costs like that you could be spending doing other things. You're also not being present and sort of an actionable being who can actually impact these things that you have inquiries about uh, in the first place. And then two, I mean, not two, uh, (laughs) is that three? I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, as far as being with, uh, as far as even questioning friends, right? I've done that before. I've had that conversation in my head. And then the moment I spend time with them and then see them in action, see myself in action in relationship to them, then, okay, everything was completely fine. Why did I have to waste all that time thinking about it? There was even this girl that I was thinking about. This was, uh, this is a while ago. I was thinking about, uh, how she behaved and did this and did that and all that and all this whole narrative. Then I see her again. And I was thinking about all these things I was going to say or do or whatever. And then we actually hang out. Everything was so smooth and and normal and fine. And there was, it was a complete waste of time that I just could have spent doing other things.
2: Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you score high on neuroticism.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and I love that, you know, you talk about sort of the too muchness of it. So the fact that we do get into it a little bit too much. But what's so interesting is also on the other end, you have the self-delusion too. So uh, we had on David Myers, the so the person who coined the term the Le effect, which I really love. And so the idea is that we do tend to be pretty self-delusional. So yes, on the one hand, so somebody like Alan is really introspective. And so for the most part, I would say you probably don't think too much of your positive qualities because you're always doubting yourself. But then on the other extreme, <laughs> the other extreme... I- I know, right? That's a bomb on the podcast. So, but then at the other extreme, you have people who are super self delusional, and then so they have self enhancing beliefs. So, I like that in your book, you talk about these two extremes. Now, well, let me just be clear what I mean by that. So, you talk about those two extremes, and then you talk about two other extremes. So, one extreme is that you have, like we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you have people with their own biases. Uh, well, I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast when so I quoted your book, uh, you have your own. You have people with their own biases, so they have a kind of difficulty of so they have their own sort of vested interest in you having certain values and beliefs. But then on the other hand, there's a sort of self-enhancing bias where you think of yourself as being much smarter, uh, you know, let's say more attractive or whatever, just better all around than you actually are. So I like that in your book, you talk about the importance of actually utilizing friendships and investing in those relationships that actually help you, that pretty much are a mirror to you and help you self-reflect. So can we talk a little bit about that and the importance of them and essentially why we get trapped in these kind of self-serving biases? And then also how people kind of trick us into believing things that we don't necessarily think are true either.
2: Yeah, oh so that that yes, excellent topic, but I can't resist going back to the the romantic partners for a second. It's True. related to this this um topic that you that you brought up, but it just it what you were saying about the people who ask you, you know, am I really in love with this person? The I it seems to me like part of the problem is actually a kind of um, cultural narrative about what romantic love is so you get you know you get you get it from rom-coms where romantic comedies where like what love looks like is so glitzy and uh, pretty and you know full of flush and and excitement and when people stay together long enough like that that sparkly everything is unicorns and rainbows that that kind of disappears and you have something else that is also great but I think it, people who wonder like am I really in love with this person it seems to me like they're kind of misled by that cultural narrative about what love is like and they're not thinking that you know over time love changes into something different and you, you have to you have to kind of realize that and accept it I don't know I've been married for almost 30 years so so maybe I'm um that's that's something that's uh I feel like it's a lesson that I learned that's important I don't know if 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 you think that cultural narratives play that role but yeah
1: Expectations. Yeah, yeah. So, and you even get this initially too. So when you start dating somebody, the thinking is there has to be initial, it have to be initial sparks. So I often get people who tell me, well, you know, I went on a date with this person, but I didn't really feel like, you know, a head over heels in love with her or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you're probably not going to really feel that. I'm like, what does it mean to be head over heels in love with somebody? Usually what that means is that they're incredibly attractive. So yes, you're not going to probably date incredibly attractive people most of the vast majority of the time. So yeah, people kind of get trapped in that thinking of like, oh, I'm going to wait for the next person to come around because that person is going to make me feel that way. But then the other thing that they don't consider is that even if you are head over heels in love with somebody, that can actually fade quicker than you think. So all of a sudden you start talking to them and you realize, oh, we don't really have that much in common. They're maybe not that considerate. Uh, they don't have much going for them in terms of a professional life, whatever it is, you know, things, that, other things that you value you know, besides appearance. So yeah, a lot of times what happens is it's either you get it and it fades quickly or you just don't really get it at all.
0: And then even if you do get it, right, like you said, it it does change over time, right? That, like For example, a lot of people are attached to the images of their partner or an image of what love is supposed to look like, or an image of how relationships in general should look like, and passion and all of that. But the thing is, that person that you're growing with and changing with, one, you're changing over time, two, they're changing over time, and holding on to these static images of what things are supposed to be like, instead of actually kind of embracing the reality and then choosing to still love the person in whatever way, Uh, you know, whether it be uh, well, hopefully ideally unconditionally. It's never it's never so simple. It's like, of course, a lot of us, especially like on these like podcasts or into this sort of material, of course, we're going to say we value, you know, uh, attempting to be most optimal in our relationships, our lives and live the best lives. But, you know, it's never so simple, but still uh, just appreciating that that person that you're with changes and trying to really embrace and move with that change and not have like sort of this egoic way of uh, seeing right. them and reacting when they act in different ways to your image of them.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. And I so I think that point about images brings us back to the question that um, it's Alan, right?
1: Oh no, this
2: I'm is Leon, uh, Leon, that's no, how Leon. Okay. I should have straightened that all out before, before we started talking. But no, the, okay. Leon's question from a long time ago about um the the influence of other people and trying to manage, you know, sometimes they have insights, but sometimes they have agendas. And how do you mm-hmm. cope with all of that? Because it does have to do with this uh fact about, you know, people have an image. Of you you have an image of yourself, but also our friends and family members have an image of us. And it takes a pretty special person to be able to kind of recognize what image they have of another person to see what part of that is likely more likely to be real and what part of it is influenced by their own hopes. Mm-hmm. So I so I think this is kind of an issue for for young people with. Um, their relationships with their parents, where you know, lots of people will say, like, when I go home to visit my family, I feel like I'm the kid. I'm I'm the six year old kid again. I'm the youngest, or I'm the you know the middle child, and that's how they treat me. And I, I noticed this with my students that they're they're pretty like um, much more so than my generation. They share a lot with their parents. College kids these days. And they get a lot of advice from their parents. And I guess like I would sort of want to warn them that, you know, the the image your parents have of you doesn't always fit who you really are perfectly. And so that's a case where you need to. I think these, these students need to have the wherewithal to sort of realize, okay, my mom is advising me this because she sees me in this way and she has these hopes and dreams for my future, but that might not fit what I, what brings me joy and what I like to do and what I think is the best life. So that's, that's one of those places where, where it gets complicated, like who you can take advice from, who you can listen to, what to do with that advice. But I think those kinds of complications come up in all sorts of relationships, certainly in romantic relationships too, where, you know, you, your partner wants you to do certain expected things. And Mm -hmm. so, They have an image of you as the person who's going to play that role in your life, and you need to be aware that that it's it's possible that their image of you can come apart from what actually is true about you.
1: Right. So how do we begin to help guide somebody who, let's say, hypothetically, it's a college kid. He might be going or she might be going to law school. And maybe it's at the advice of their parents. And the parents are giving them a million reasons why they have to go to law law school. Let's say maybe you as a friend or some external advisor sees the kind of flaws in the arguments or at the very least sees the bias in them. And this person says, yeah, well, you know, it's not really my value to be a lawyer. But, you know, mom says I'm going to make a lot of money and I'll be able to take care of myself. And what's most important is to be able to provide for yourself or your family. What do we tell that person?
2: I'm glad I'm not a therapist. <laughs> um so I, I guess I think there's two issues there. So one is like how do you help someone figure out what they really want as compared to what they've been told that they want? And at that, you know, one of the strategies that I talk about in the book that I the one, the one I probably like the best is I call it the lab rat strategy mm-hmm. and it it's basically e- the idea is to kind of look at yourself, to try to look at yourself from the outside as if you were a scientist or a psychologist studying you. And you can ask, you know, um, how am I behaving? (laughs) Am I like tired all the time and stressed out with stomach problems? Uh, or, you know, when I, when I go, you know, Dancing or I read a philosophy book, am I suddenly brought brought to life and all excited and want to do more of it? Um, you can try to see those things about yourself as if you were looking from the outside. And I think you can also ask, you can sort of think, well, I'm a human being. Human beings need, we need close relationships with other people. We need to have some autonomy, we need to be able to explore um the world in some way or other we also need some stability we have these basic human needs and you can ask like how are the goals that I've set for myself meeting those needs you can just ask that as if you were a you know a zoo animal (laughs) like are we is the is the tiger getting getting all the stuff he needs in the cage but then so that's 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 part of the question but then the other part if the person is pretty self-aware and thinks mom says I should go to law school for these reasons I know it doesn't really fit me I don't I don't like it how do you talk them into doing something that's more authentic and talk them out of doing something just to please their parents I don't know I I don't really have
1: yeah and
0: maybe actually on that topic um i guess it depends what kind of parents you have but if if you if let's say let's say they justify it like every parent's going to be different and also not every parent is a, is a good parent or uh completely benevolent right but let's pretend we're dealing with like uh maybe moderate, someone yeah. who's at least moderately in your benefit right right if i find that if you could at least try to see it from their perspective first that um they only want what's good for you and this is what they see in their mind out of all the variables they see in their mind what they think is going to help you they only care about your uh, well-being they only care about you succeeding and having a good life right so if you're able to identify like certain motivations like that and then you bring that into a conversation with them like uh for first you'd ask them you know why do you want me to be uh a lawyer. Why do you think lawyer is the best one out of all the other options? Well, uh, they make a lot of money. They do this, this, whatever, all the reasons. Then you could say to them, uh, "Okay, I uh, you could even restate to them what they said, like in a summary and then say, "Okay, I, I actually I see what you're saying. But then what do you think about this other career path? And then actually give some reasons for why that career path might make sense. And they're probably more likely to listen, even though they still might be that authoritative, you know.
1: Alan's so good at this. No, 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 because seriously,
0: no, because here's the thing, uh, because the moment you acknowledge their point of view, they're gonna feel like they're understood and that you're not being the kid who's just like, I don't want to do uh, this and I don't know what's good for me. You basically show that you understand their perspective, and then they're at least a little bit more likely to listen to what you have to say and have the conversation. But it might not happen depending how young that kid is. Because then they're going to be like not armed with the conversational tools uh, to be able to manage that. Yeah. And then they probably still lose from just that authoritative position like where the kid is at. And it won't even be about logic at that point. Yeah. So Absolutely. the kid would have to be really
1: a, a little bit what I love is that I would have taken the defensive stance. So I actually love this part of your book where you talk about fit and fitting personality and fitting human nature. I would just argue like, Hey man, like there's certain parts of my personality that are not going to fit this particular career. So when you guys were talking and also when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the documentary, the Alpinus. So his mom, I forgot his name. He's a, he's a mountaineer or was a mountaineer before he passed. And so his mom, who was actually a phenomenal mother, she said, look, you know, and this was at his funeral while she was giving his eulogy. She said, look, you know, uh, I kind of knew this was, Incredible. I mean, I didn't kind of, she's like, I knew this was incredibly dangerous, but she said, look at it like this, man. He was literally climbing his walls when he was like two. Uh, All he would talk about was mountaineering. He hated school. His teachers really didn't get along with him. He he didn't really get along with them. And then, so ultimately, what was I going to do? Was I going to force this kid to sit in the classroom? He had severe ADD, right? So, and uh, with ADD comes a lot of things. I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole clinical presentation, but one of the big ones is boredom. And one of the big ones is uh, kind of, yeah, Uh, let me just finish. So uh, kind of a low threshold or rather a high threshold, I'm sorry, for excitement. So when you think about it that way, you have this kid and fit again, right? So you have this kid with a personality that craves excitement. So she was saying, look, man, did I think that he was gonna live a short life? I thought there was a high chance or a high probability that he would. But what was I going to do? Okay, so let's say the other end. Okay, so I tell him, no, you know, you can't do this. This is too dangerous. You have to go to school. You have to study like everybody else. He was going to be incredibly depressed. Uh, he might have ended up hospitalized, maybe even suicidal. I would have probably been blamed for ruining his life, and he wouldn't have been wrong if I did. So what is it that I should have done as a good mother? Should I try to protect my son, or should I have allowed him to flourish, right, and live based on his values? Hmm. That I
2: love that example so much because I, I am fascinated. I saw that movie
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you're, you, you know, you just, you spoiled the ending, but, but, um, <laughs> uh, but so that's okay. I, and I'm fascinating, fascinated by stories about rock climbers and mountaineers and these extreme sports people, partly because of my philosophical view that like, People are different, and you can't well whatever well being or flourishing is, it, it can't be a one size fits all. And we have to be sensitive to the different the ways in which the people that we care about are different from us. And I, I guess the reason that I love all these extreme sports. Um, stories is that I'm such a chicken. I mean, I, I there's just no way I would ever do anything that had that much risk attached to it. Um, and so the thought that there are these people, like Alex Hanold too. I mean, when yeah. you hear him interviewed yeah. about what he's done and why he's done it and how he feels about it, it's so foreign. And I really love that because it just makes me think like. Yeah, you know, people are weird and and we're not all alike. And you just, if you want to help somebody else live their best life, it's not always going to be about helping them be more like you.
1: Yeah. So, and I love that again, going back to the context of values and this is so now let's get into culture, right? So a lot of times, and I want to kind of more so focus on this sort of oppressive side, but I do want to kind of, uh, tag along where we started or tag from, I guess, I don't know how you would say, but sort of tag on the fact that, so there's a kind of clash a lot of times with values and culture. So, uh, you know, going into kind of the territory of now oppression, a lot of times we see people who want to flourish and they can't because culture tells you, well, either you can't and, or usually you're not allowed to do these things. But then obviously, you know, when we're going back and talking about, like, let's say the Alpinist, what we're saying is that, well, oftentimes culture tries to normalize you. And so oftentimes you have these mental health struggles from either one, right? Sometimes from both. So again, from culture normalizing you or from culture telling you you're subhuman or abnormal in some sort of way. So, right. And I love that in your book, as we kind of go along the pages um, and as we go you know, through the chapters, now we're getting into the territory of culture and how culture kind of affects and infuses our values and how it really tells us what we can and can't do.
0: And actually, in, yeah, in your book, you do have an example of this, too. There's, there was a religious uh, person who loved dancing. Uh, and then, yeah, he, he was afraid of how it would look uh, if he showed that side of himself.
2: Right. So someone, there are these, I think, I forget which religion, Pentecostal, Pentecostal. Christian, the Pentecostal church where dancing is considered sinful. And so it, based on somebody I read about once who who grew up in that tradition and rejected the religion, but couldn't really get rid of the little voice in his head that said it's sinful to to, to, to love to dance. Um, But he nevertheless did love dancing. And so it was a real conflict and a struggle for him. I also think like, Um, it, you know, I I think my experience and probably most of the examples in the book have to do with, um, what the, like the, the cultural norms for women, especially in, um, my, my field philosophy is, is fairly, um, it, it hasn't been a very welcoming field for women. The people are trying to change that it's getting better, but, but, you know, it's been, it's been a interesting experience being a woman in philosophy, but I think our culture does a number on men too. I mean, men who, who uh, maybe this is getting better in your generation and the generation of my college students. I hope it's getting better, but, uh, but for my husband's generation and certainly my father. Um, the norms against being emotionally connected to other people, the norms against expressing yourself emotionally, the norms against being demonstrative or cuddly with your kids, or, you know, all of that kind of, um, that cultural image of what it is to be a man. It's pretty oppressive for any male person who doesn't, fit that it seems to me so so I actually think that these cultural pressures are the you know they don't just affect the group that is the kind of target of the oppression they sort of affect everybody
1: I I think anyway and if it's okay, so now going back to again your personal life. So another big, so I pretty much love all the personal parts of your book. Um, so one of the parts that I really love, another part, was about your kind of understanding that, or at least your belief. I don't want to say your understanding, your belief that you weren't too, you weren't aggressive enough to become a philosopher. Um, so can we talk about in that sense what your values were and how they clashed with the cultural expectations? Because on the one hand, so it, two two actual cultural expectations. So on the one hand, the philosopher is supposed to be an aggressive sort of skilled debater, and then on the other hand, a woman is supposed supposed to be very meek and sort of very differential. And how did you kind of make sense of that? And how did you eventually obviously become a philosopher?
2: So I think for a lot of years, I just uh, struggled and suffered from that combination of influences. And actually partly writing this book helped me think if, you know, you said my understanding, this book helped me under writing. This book actually helped me understand it better than I had before in Mm -hmm. terms of thinking about it as a clash of values for myself. Um, Because the thing about like those cultural norms for femininity uh, not being aggressive and assertive and in your face those are norms that I internalized, you know, not all women do. Some women are just resist that. But for me, they're, they're part of my own view about the kind of person I should be. And that in a way makes the, it it makes the conflict between like, well, I want to be a philosopher because I love philosophy and I even like arguing. Uh, But I also think I ought not to be very argumentative. So that conflict it's out there, but it's also internal to me um and I guess the you know when I was younger the way that that internal conflict manifested itself is in a lot of kind of inappropriate behavior behavior like being argumentative with the wrong people like my family and being deferential to the wrong people like my professors so I I was just kind of you know Muddling through, trying to figure out how do I how do I uh, obey all these conflicting norms at the same time in the same life, and it just honestly just took a lot of time to kind of realize oh that's what's happening and there are ways of you know once you sort of identify what are the values in philosophy that I care about i it's not like being mean it's not being an asshole that's that's not what i like about philosophy but it is uh arguing about you know making arguments about what's true and very clear thinking making distinctions and what is it i value in about you know the kind of my my personality do i value being deferential no i i But I do value being nice and being nice to other people and being kind. And once you get clearer about what actually matters, you can, there are more ways, well, there were for me anyway, better ways of fitting those things together. Um, Because you can be like a clear thinking person who likes to have philosophical arguments and also be a kind person at the same time. You can't be an argumentative asshole and a and a deferential person at the same time. Those just that's a conflict. But once you sort out like what's really important here, I I, I did I do think I found a way to fit them together.
0: Mm-hmm. No, totally. And uh, anyway, when at least when uh, first exposed to philosophy, it, it does seem like the idea is like is, is to make the most compelling argument in relation to someone else's argument. And essentially, to you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, to to win, right? And then there would be people who would use, you know, even though we're not supposed to, but you're supposed to use, I'm uh, not supposed to, but you could use uh, logical fallacies, right? You could use uh, sophistry, straw manning somebody's argument, say something that will just uh, morale wise kind of bring them down, right? And then take away from their argument, even if their argument is actually logically sound um so yeah uh, totally like there's there's things kind of inherent or at least that you you get that idea that it's about kind of winning these yeah. arguments right so it feels opposed to having this sort of harmonious uh integrative sort of um uh, understanding of two or more opposing sides right uh yeah, but yeah. I, but but i like this idea of um I've, I've only heard about this idea in the past uh i don't know Maybe five years, Uh, I could be getting it wrong. But this idea of, as opposed to straw manning, uh, steel manning, where you actually say the person's argument uh, to see if you understood it correctly, and then basically give points, you know, whatever it is that your thought is. And then you just kind of have that exchange of each person steel manning each other, which is, it it sounds very interesting. It it doesn't sound like the whole point of it is to win. It's some kind of understanding.
1: And I would actually just really quickly add to that. So these ideas of femininity and masculinity, like I love that they pervade any sort of academic field, because if you think about argumentation and winning, that's just like, you know, this extreme masculine trait. So I often mention the example of my college mentor who was a philosopher, Dr. Tim Strube. So for him, he was never like that. I guess you could call him feminine in some ways. I don't know, but he was an argument. Even though he had a point, he was incredibly assertive. He every single time he talked to him, he always had a great argument and a ton of facts and sources to back up his claims. He was also like very Bill Gates esque, where he could like read a book within probably an afternoon, like a really long book, probably like anywhere from three hundred to five hundred pages. And the thing with him, he was, uh, and I'm going to use this term, I'm not super serious about it, but he was very insidious. There was a sort of stealthness to his argumentation, where you kind of be like, "Wait, did I read that?" did he win that argument that you couldn't really tell but often and most of the time you'd realize that he wanted it. and it wasn't because he was super aggressive and i wonder where this kind of came from but i'm assuming again going back to the cultural norm of masculinity where philosophers think that they have to be aggressive and argumentative and where you you know as a woman entering philosophy thought like oh my god i have to be like this domineering asshole in order to succeed
2: yeah i you know I, as you're as i'm listening to you i i'm realizing it things really have changed. I mean, I was in grad school more than 25 years ago and it it was different then. There were fewer women in the field and the the those those kinds of aggressive norms were I think more um they were stronger than they are now. So to me that's a good change. And actually, I think the really the most striking piece of evidence of change has to do with just um this steel manning thing which i love yeah. i've never actually heard that before so wow, i gotta, I gotta I bring that. that to my department cool. yeah i love
0: <laughs> yeah. that
2: um because i think that's one of the that is one of the most common like you don't you don't see a lot of philosophers making logical fallacies or 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 um Using sophistry, but you do see a lot of straw manning because they—it's like, well, if the point is to win, why should I bother interpreting you charitably? I should interpret you in you know in the bare minimum way, like just based on the words you said, and then attack. And Mm -hmm. so this this idea that you would instead of you know thinking, okay, I heard what you said, I have an objection, charge, instead of that to say like. I don't know if I understood what you said. Was it something like this or was it something like that? That's so much more constructive, I think. And I think there is real evidence that philosophers do more of that than they used to. In our teaching, too, like I see my younger colleagues teaching and they're all about charitable readings of texts. And maybe that was always true. We were always kind to the historical ancestors of our philosophical views. But but now people are better about that now, I think. So that's progress
1: yeah and by the way so what's so interesting is so cognitive behavioral therapy which is what i practice super based on philosophy heavily based on it um and then so oftentimes people will say well the reason why i would never see a cbt therapist is because it's always some asshole telling you what to think so when you think about something like the concept of cognitive restructuring the belief is that oh you're just restructuring to his view (laughs) so it's not like you know you guys are openly exploring or whatever it's like no no the therapist is just telling you what to think so as you're going through the process it's like you're wrong because of this 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 and this and this is why you should think differently and now like, dude, that's not what good therapy is. It's not like that. So yes, you can present an argument and say, okay, based on my clinical expertise, this is what I think, but you're always open to feedback. So I would say the great version of therapy is very Hegelian. It's very synthetic. So somebody is able to sort of present some sort of counter argument and you find kernels of truth in each part. Yes. Most of the time, the therapist is going to know better. That's why we get paid. I mean, that's kind of be a part of it, but no, we don't know everything. So what I try to tell my clients is that, yes, even though I know certain things about particular clinical syndromes, I don't know things about you, right? The only thing that I know about you specifically is what you present to me. So even though I could say like, okay, this is how you would go about treating this particular syndrome, I would understand that if something I would say or do doesn't work specifically for you, because you have sort of certain pensions or tendencies toward whatever, you know, my point is to say that it's a complicated matter. So it's never really one size fits all. Even when we're talking about clinical outcome studies, you know, some therapies work for some people, some other therapies work for other and again, because it's very individual. So it's, you, you kind of it's not that you pick and choose, but people have different again, tendencies. So my point is to say that oftentimes with therapy, that's kind of the misconception that you would get with philosophy, that it's somebody telling you what to do and what to think. And it's not supposed to be that. So if we're really looking for truth, whether again, you're in the kind of academic discipline or philosophy, or you're in the clinical setting, you're always looking to help the other person and yourself find out what is right, what works. And again, ultimately, like a simple and cheesy as it is, what is the truth? Like, why can't truth supersede everything else? Ultimately, if you really, again, in my setting, if you really want to help the person and truth has to be more important than you winning
2: totally i'm fascinated that you think cbt comes from philosophy is yeah, that that's,
1: like it's based on stoicism yeah
2: stoicism okay yeah that's what i was thinking too stoicism yeah. has a kind of renaissance right now it seems
0: it's yeah
1: kind of it all these you know, ryan and-
0: holiday and like, yeah yeah yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, what's interesting, it's arguable that pretty much all psychotherapy is actually philosophy. And I, I'm, I pretty much subscribe to that, even though I understand. Um, so there's a heavy scientific element in terms of clinical outcome studies. But in terms of the theoretical framework, it's all based on philosophy. So like you have existential therapy, which is obviously based on, you know, Camus, Kierkegaard, etc. Uh, Yalom, who's pretty much a philosopher to one extent or another. And then you have obviously CBT, which is heavily stoic. Uh, ACT is, by the way, pretty Buddhist, where you're pretty much just being mindful of your emotions. And then let's say, and psychoanalysis. I mean, if you think about Freud, I mean, that's pure philosophy, you know, Freud, a lot of his idea, a lot of his ideas were based on very few observations. And obviously, he created this grand theoretical framework. So yeah, I would argue that pretty much all therapy is philosophy to a pretty, pretty big extent.
2: That's cool. You should write a book about that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know what's so interesting? There was a really great book written by Julian Baggini, who was, uh, he was actually on our show. Uh, so it was by him and I forget her name. And the book is called The Sage and the Shrink. And so Baggini, who's a psych, yeah, who's a philosopher and she, who's a psychotherapist, what they do is they tackle important questions about life in their different sort of frameworks. So Baggini would talk about, let's say, meaning or lack thereof. And he would say, this is what philosophy has to say about it. And then the psychotherapist will say, well, this is what therapy has to say about it. And then they'll talk about death anxiety and what are the two kind of frameworks Works, have to say about that, uh, you know, in terms of relationships, how do we make that work? So what's so interesting in the book and what makes it work so well is that you find so much overlap between the two.
2: That's cool. Yeah, that's that's a great thing for me to, to learn about that book. Yeah. <laughs> Bonus.
1: Yeah.
0: And actually, uh, going back to your book, right? So there was something that we discussed that could sort of tie to this. But uh, so kind of like your example where you were talking about the student uh, whose parents Wanted him to get into law school yep. and pursue that path. Say, uh, say we were dealing with someone. It's not that their parents want them to pursue a certain goal; it's that they just don't know what their goals are or what their values are. We did talk about self-awareness, but how could someone struggling with finding out about what their real, you know, intrinsic uh, goals are and aspirations? Uh, what can they do to find out what, what they really want out of life?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm always, I always feel a little bit um, hesitant in asking these in answering these, these very, you know um, the kinds of questions that you would ask a therapist because I'm not a therapist. Uh, So my, my ideas about these questions are, are at a sort of level of, you know, theory that might not be that useful to people but i but i do think that um because introspection has the limits that it has that we talked about earlier i think it's really important to like you know what um observe your reactions to things so to ec- explore the world and try things for one thing and then to pay attention to how those things make you feel Uh, Mm. you know what what are the things that you find yourself doing that bring you into a state of flow where you just lose your sense of time and and you feel you're just in it totally in the moment you know typically that's some kind of skilled activity that's um challenging but not too challenging and what are the activities that you do that you find boring and tedious and you know soul sucking um unless those things are connected to some big important value that you have you tell know, us like- your billing exactly unless <laughs> it's like billing uh <laughs> or you know grading, no professor likes grading.
1: Mm.
2: Sorry to say, uh, and, <laughs> but but you have to do that as a teacher. So grading is grading can be boring, and that's okay because I know why I'm doing it. But if you're if you're kind of a young person and you're looking for your passion. And, the, you know, you, there's a certain you, you're taking biology courses or accounting courses or whatever. And, and your only reaction to them is that you're bored out of your head. That's a sign that, that doesn't fit you very well. So those are those are the sorts of things I think people can do. I mean, I'm actually not sure how much I mean, how much therapy can how much can an actual therapist help you find the things that you're passionate about? They can help you, I think, clear away the, the noise that's in your head, preventing you from realizing what you care about, but to actually find things that move you. Like, I think you have to go try stuff and, yeah. and and then that's actually it, what yeah. happens
1: yeah FYI in behavioral therapy this is literally just called behavioral activation where the idea is you go off into the world and you experiment so it's like instead of just, the cognitive portion is where you think things through you're like okay what's the evidence for this what's the evidence against that etc and the behavioral part is like no just go out there and try
2: cool yeah awesome. yeah and the, I mean that's yeah. part of the importance of it's one of the things that worries me about like this period of the pandemic where I think a lot of young people sort of lost or didn't develop their social skills. So I I think it's really important to meet a lot of people and to meet people who aren't just like you and to have conversations with them and to, you know, stay up all night talking in person to people. (laughs) And uh, because if you don't do that, you don't find out. You know, you don't learn things about yourself, about what you're like, and you don't find out what other people are like. If you just stay in your little bubble of people who play the same computer games as you, it's not, it's not the same. Yeah.
1: yeah by the way, that's what we love about our podcast. So we have, so, so it started out initially in whenever it was 2019 with just a mental health slash philosophy approach. And then we try to expand it. And we're like, okay, let's try to have maybe a neuroscientist on, uh, maybe a doctor, you know, journalist, et cetera. And we're like, wow, man, we talked to all of these different people and learned so many different things that again, if in our initial like little niche of philosophy and mental health, we would have never accessed.
2: That's so cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that. Okay, so Alan, final questions for Valerie as we begin to wrap up. Yes. Uh, If we wanted
0: to follow you, uh, follow your work, and and of course, buy the book, uh, where could we do that?
2: Oh, well, that's a nice thing for you to ask. Uh, So uh, (laughs) uh, I, I think you can buy the book basically anywhere that you would buy books, um, but it's on my website, which is just valerytiberius.com. there are links and lots of links to other, you know, articles and other podcasts and stuff like that too.
1: Okay, excellent. Awesome.
0: Uh, by the way, I checked out the site too, like before. I, I like the outlook of it. Well, for, first of all, when you get to the main page, you can actually just click new book and then see the book. But there's also this part where it's like personal life. And it shows stuff about like your whole family, which I wasn't expecting. I actually thought it was just going to be like a bio about you. And I thought that was cool. And oh, photos, thank you. So,
2: yeah. Well, I, a shout out to my sister, Paula, who does, who she does my website. It would, right. it would be pretty crappy if it weren't for her.
1: <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. All right, Valerie, thank you so much for coming thank on. You. This was thank excellent.
2: Thank you. It was great talking to you guys. It was a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely. You, we'll talk to you soon. Take care
0: awesome okay so everyone if you'd like to follow us you can follow us at seize the moment podcast on facebook and on instagram on twitter we're at seize underscore podcast like subscribe hit hit the the bell on YouTube. youtube again thank you so much for watching and see you next time